Welcome to Willard Church of the Nazarene. We're glad you're here. We can't wait to share the service with you. Only you can satisfy 
I know Everything I need you've got There's honey in the rock Spirit is bounty in the wilderness. You will always satisfy. There's honey in the rock, water in the stone, manna on the ground. No matter where I go, I don't need to worry now that I know everything I need. You've got there's honey in the rock. Purpose in your plan, power in the blood, healing in your hands, started flowing when you said it is done. Everything ain't is enough, first you keep looking, I keep finding, you keep giving, keep providing, I have all that I need, I have all that I need. stone metal on the ground no matter where i go i don't need to worry now that i know everything i need you've got there's honey in the rock purpose in your plan power in the blood healing in your hands started flowing when you said it is done jesus you are wild enough there's honey in the rock sweet it is to trust in you Jesus oh how sweet how sweet it is to trust in you Jesus oh how sweet how sweet it is to trust in you Jesus Scars of love upon his 
Jesus. His name is Jesus. Light of the world, there's freedom in His name. Awesome in
Well, if you would, would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5? Matthew 5. We're going to be beginning at verse 21. We say, come as you are. We mean that. I don't care what your past is. I don't care what other people say about you. Right, you're you're welcome here. You could be an atheist that hates God. You're welcome here, and uh, we want to invite you to have your life completely flipped upside down. Right, that's what we want to be as a church. Matthew five, beginning at verse twenty one. I'm going to start in uh, Matthew seven twenty eight, but you don't have to turn there. We are continuing on with our study of the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, and we have said that this sermon gives us an image of what it live, looks like to live out Christianity. What it looks like to live out Christianity in community, right? That's, that's the description here. That's the expectation for this new kind of community, this new community, this new kingdom that he's building. It's a community that's radically different, radically counterculture to the word world. We know the gospel changes people, and therefore it should change how we deal with people and how we treat people and how we do life together. And this is an image of that, all right? Today we're going to be going through the deep things. The deep things are going to be exposed, and that's a good thing. The moment that the Bible or Jesus does not put you into tension is the moment that you've quit listening to it, right? The Bible exposes the deep things in our lives, the hidden things. And if you're comfortable reading the Bible and it does not challenge you, you are not listening to it. You are not applying it to your life. Tension, that's the effect that these words have had on people since the time Jesus spoke these words till today. I want to look at the last words of chapter 7 to see how these crowds responded. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not just as their teachers of the law. Let's focus in on one thing, all right, in this passage. The crowds were amazed. That word does not mean much to us today, the word amazed. All right? There are a lot of amazing things that we talk about in our world today, but that's also translated astounded or astonished. This astonished them, what he taught. It astounded them. 
The word Matthew, the word that Matthew used in the Greek means to be out of mind. This blew their minds, what he taught. And I pray that it does the same to us today. Why? Well, the passage says that it was related to his authority, and it was his authority in relationship to Israel's law. The word law there, think Jewish or Israelite history. Don't think just law or lawyers. That word law underneath is the Hebrew word Torah which refers to the first five books of the Old Testament. The Torah is a story, right? It's a story that starts in creation and that, and that moves and keeps on moving. It, it does refer to the laws or the commands that God gives to the nation of Israel. We're, we're very familiar with the first ten, right? We know the first ten, the Ten Commandments. There are 603 more laws that follow those first ten, those in these first five books. In Jesus' time and for hundreds of years before this, these were the statements from God on how people were supposed to live together, live together in community, in the community of Israel. Then Jesus enters the scene, though. Then Jesus comes down, right, and announces that God's kingdom is at hand, and he's bringing it. And he says, here's what the Torah says, right? But here's what I'm saying for my followers, For Christians today, Jesus set his words alongside the Torah and it blew their minds. Now, it wasn't just the authority that did that, right? It was the things that Jesus addressed. It would be uh, pretend that you know nothing about icebergs, right? We all know a lot about icebergs today, but pretend pretend that you don't know anything. These these great chunks. Of, of ice floating in the oceans. Do you remember the time when you discovered that there was far more ice below the surface than above the surface? Do you remember that, seeing those, those pictures? There's these massive chunks above the surface, but when you look, there was something far bigger and far deeper beneath the surface. There's an image of an iceberg. There, there's a chunk above. We don't even see the complete chunk below. I love these images because of the relationship of of what you can see above. Look at that. doesn't even compare to what you can see below. You just don't have a picture of reality if you're just looking at the surface, right? That's just a small portion of what we're looking at. It's just a glimpse. It's just the tip of the iceberg, right? What I want us to understand is that the part above the surface is like our behavior. The things we do and the part below the surface is is our heart. It's why we do the things that we do. The Torah deals with the part above the surface. That little bit above the surface. The behavior. But Jesus' teaching goes below the surface and deals with the heart. It deals with the things not normally seen, right? On an average day, you're hanging out with your friends. You're hanging out with your coworkers. You're in society, right? And what do we observe? We observe the surface. We observe behavior. It's mostly surface stuff. But what don't we see in people? We can't see their heart all the time. We can't see what's below that surface, right? Oftentimes, we have no clue about what's going on in the surface. I think Howard's a good testimony of that. We have no clue. We tend to see people and put labels on them. Oh, they're gay, right? Oh, they're an addict. 
oh, they're struggling with this. What, what happened in their past? What, what led them to them? What did society teach them? What, what, what pains have they dealt with, right? How were they impacted? How did their culture shape them? These, these things that are underneath the surface in our heart are the things that drive us to do what we do, all right? And Jesus sees this. He knows this. And what he's not interested in doing is forming another community that just tries to regulate behavior. Oh, just be good, right? Just, just follow these rules, this, this surface stuff, these laws. He's here to address the real deep things beneath the surface, your heart. And, and that's the difference, all right? That's the difference between the teaching of the Torah. It goes far deeper than what the law teaches. He doesn't just want to tell you not to do something. He wants to get to the root of the matter and change the things, change your heart so that you no longer want to do those things. That's the key, right? Remember this from, from a couple weeks ago. This is the difference between religion and Christianity. Religion deals with the surface. Christianity changes the heart. It goes much deeper. Remember what Jesus said, your righteousness has to surpass those of the religious leaders, of the Pharisees. You have to be more righteous than the most religious people that you know. And it blew their minds. That's because the religious people deal with the surface. And Jesus goes far deeper beneath that. Matthew 5.17. Let's make this clear, though. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's not saying the law is wrong or do away with the wrong, the law, but he's come to fulfill it. He's come to take it deeper. All right? Uh, that's what holiness is. We are a holiness church, right? It's not about the rules. I used to think holiness was all about following the rules, and I tried to do that, and I always failed, right? I'd be good for a season, but then I'd fail, and there was this war inside of me because. I wanted to do these things. I was told that I would, should do these things. But there was also another part of me that didn't want to do these things, right? And wanted to do what I wanted to do. So it was just an eternal state of being in tension with what I'm supposed to do and what I want to do. Holiness changes that, though, because it changes your heart and what you want to do. Right? If I tell you do this and you do this because you have to do this, it's a lot different than if your heart changes and you want to do this instead. That's the key. That's what Jesus was bringing. That's how he is fulfilling the law. Right? In a story sense, this begins at the moment that God freed his people from slavery in Egypt. He brings them to the foot of the mountain, Mount Sinai, right? And he invites them, these slaves that he's freed, to be in a covenant relationship with him. That's what he offers. He begins to give them the laws, the, the terms of this covenant. You know the first 10, the 10 commandments. You know that there's 603 more now, right? What all these laws are designed to do, though, is just shape the nation of Israel as a contrast community to those around them, to the nations around them. They're to be different. They're to have different standards, different standards of generosity, different standards of justice, different standards for how we treat the elderly, the weak in our society, right? 
And God says that when we do so, that we can become a kingdom of priests. They're, they're the mediators of God's character to the nations around them. They're going to show who God is and what God's will is for people and what God is pulling people towards. The story goes on, though, and shows how Israel does in this covenant relationship. And how, how do they do? They do horrible, right? Over 600 long years of epic fail. The nations around them conquer them, and they drag them away to exile. And this is where the prophets come into place. The, the law and, and the prophets that Jesus referenced, right? The, po- the prophets come onto the scene after Israel's epic failure, and they lament how terrible everything is, how, how the whole thing has gone, how the whole thing has, has been. And after doing this, though, they do something. They look forward. They look forward with hope. Let me give you one passage that shows this. This is from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning at verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach the neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Amen? So at the end of a 600-year-long fail, the prophets say that instead of God quitting on us, instead of God just washing the hands of, this, of the matter and just leaving, right? Instead, he's going to move towards them. And here's what he's going to do this time. He's not going to just give them the law. He's not just going to give them these laws of stone on these tablets, right? And, and tell them to change their behavior. No, he's going to write them on their hearts. He's going to put it in their minds. And this is going to lead to a fundamental change from the inside out. He's going to move under the water and get to the deep things and address those deep issues of the heart and mind. And he's going to change the heart, right? Change the heart that we will fundamentally know him and how we should act and live in community together. That's what Jesus is here to do, right? He's here to fulfill the law, not to cancel the law, to fulfill the law. Well, how? We'll get to that. But before we do, he's going to address six areas with the law. That, and he's going to take, the, take a deep dive beneath the surface on them. And we're going to look at four of those uh, to expose the mountain that's underneath the water. So beginning at Matthew five twenty one. all right, it says this. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, right? One of the Ten Commandments, I believe the sixth. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. He's, he's not going away from that, right? But I tell you, here's he, here he's showing his authority. And he's equating it to God's authority. Actually, putting it above God's authority. We believe that Jesus is God, part of the Trinity. There's people who deny that. 
But here he is, putting himself on an equal level with God, right? Only somebody like that, only God can do that. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, maybe your translation says idiot, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in, the, will be in danger of the fire of hell. You get that? Right? So, okay, on one side, you, you murder somebody, you're going to face judgment. On the other side of that, you call somebody a fool, and you're in danger of going to hell. Does that seem logical to you? It seems a little bit backwards, right? Above the surface, we think we're doing good because we haven't murdered anybody. Right? Oh, I'm a good person. You know, I've never killed somebody. And Jesus says, congratulations, but what's beneath the surface? What's below, right? What's in your heart? The, the law addresses that. Murdering somebody, you're going to face judgment from there. But where does murder start? It starts with anger in our hearts, right? Below the surface. What's going on with your heart? Because you're thinking you're good because you haven't killed somebody. But you can still have a heart full of sin. And that's the scary thing, right? So we need to check it. There's three levels of anger here that Jesus details. The Jews had three levels of capital punishment, and Jesus is kind of referencing them and showing that anger can lead to them all. Level one, you're angry with somebody. The implications is without cause. Some translations say that. There are reasons you can be angry with somebody, and it's not a sin, right? There is a righteous anger. We're not talking about that. This is anger without a cause. As a parent, maybe you blew up at your kids. You ever done that, parents? Maybe you blew up at them for doing something that they couldn't help. They're just kids, right? Or the person that is, this is the person that's prone to bursts of anger for for little things that really we shouldn't be blowing up about, right? He equates that to murder and he says, hey, be careful because you're going to be in danger of being judged, right? Why? Because anger violates God's commandment of love, right? That's what we're called to do. We're called to love. Level two, he's saying to your brother or sister, Raka. Raka means empty head. This is anger born of pride. This is the next level of anger. This is anger born of pride. You idiot, you're not worth anything, especially compared to me. This is anger not about honoring somebody as we should, as we're called to honor somebody as Christians, right? And it's about raising ourselves above that person in pride. That's the next level, right? If we are Christ followers, we're supposed to honor people above ourselves. We're, we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves, right? You can't have this attitude and, and have a, a heart full of Christ's love. There's a disconnect there that we have to check. Level three, Christ says, this is the worst sin, calling somebody a fool, right? This is the anger born of hatred. You fool. At the heart of this is condemnation. Saying empty head refers to a person without sense, but saying you fool is actually talking about a person without grace available to them. That's the connotation. That's the meaning behind this, right? This is, this is often how we view people in a certain sin, right? This is often how we view people on the other side of politics, right? You fool, I hate those people. I hate those Democrats. I hate those Republicans, right? 
That's where it's at. They can burn in hell. Have you ever thought that about somebody? Those people can just burn in hell. I hope, they, I hope that's where the, God leads them. This, this is condemnation. And those that we have that attitude with are people we will not share God's grace with. Right? They're those people. They're the fools. We don't want to. And My friends, what could be worse than that? You see why that's the, the worst of the worst, right? We think we're doing good because we haven't murdered somebody. But how are we looking at other people? How do we see other people? The religious think they're good, but that's above the surface. Jesus says, you're not good. And he gets below the surface, right? What's in your heart? Jumping down to verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Seventh commandment. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. Throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Okay, well, I've never violated somebody else's marriage covenant. I'm a good person, right? Congratulations. That's what the Pharisees taught, though. The Pharisees, the religious leaders said, hey, if it doesn't go any further than your heart or your mind, it's okay. Jesus didn't agree with that, though, and he exposes what's below the surface. He said, hey, if you looked at a woman, not just a married woman, if you've looked at a woman lustfully, like you've dwelt on that, not that it just popped into your mind and then you immediately dismissed it. No, you've dwelt on that. You've lusted at that. You've kept going with that. You've committed adultery in your heart. He's addressing our appetite. This is the beginning of sin, right? It's where it starts. Murder starts with anger. Sexual sin starts with lust. Lust waits for the opportunity. When I view myself and my appetite for physical pleasure, right? When I view my desires as more important than the well-being of another person, right? More important than the dignity of another human being, then that's where things and actions are justified. That's where things start and they go wrong, right? It manifests itself in the movies that we play in our head. Guys, do you play the movies in your head? You're here, right? In Jesus' mind, there is no difference between physical adultery and these fantasies because in both cases, they dehumanize someone. They become something for us to use, right? They become an object. We're, again, elevating ourselves above somebody else, right? We're placing ourselves above somebody. And that, my friends, does not work in the kingdom of God. It does not work, right? It doesn't go with being a follower of Christ. It doesn't go with the call to love our neighbors as ourselves. We can't turn people into objects for our own pleasure. You get, with, you get into bed with them or don't get into bed with them. It's the same thing in your heart. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's here to expose that, right? Our hearts, because our hearts determine our actions and how we see people and how we deal with people. Pornography changes a person's heart. 
Literally, it rewires your brain. Anyone that struggles with this, uh, I've told you in my past, porn, big addiction, struggle for decades, right? And I know how I was in it and how it changed how I saw people. It fundamentally changes that, right? And it can lead you to some really ugly places. There's study after study of how porn leads to sexual abuse. Our culture says it's okay. Use it. It's a tool. There's nothing wrong with it. But there is. It gets a hold of you. And it makes you into an ugly person, right? Well, I've never done that. I've never gone the porn right porn route. Well, how are you doing looking at somebody, though? You don't have to be into porn to lust after somebody. You don't have to be into porn to, to change how you see somebody, right? Be careful with that. Is this person I see a child of God? Ask yourself that. Is that how I'm viewing this person? Because if you're into porn, you're not looking at somebody like that. If you're lusting after them, you're not looking at somebody like that, right? It will change how I see them. Uh, will I see them as a person to share God's grace, or are they just a piece of meat to be used to get something that I want? We like to be like the Pharisees, though. I'm not doing it physically. It doesn't hurt anyone. Or I'm not looking at porn. I'm just looking at these other images, and these women aren't married, so you know it's not that bad. We justify us. That's religion. That's religion. That's exactly what the religious teachers taught. But Jesus takes it far deeper. And he wants to change our hearts. He wants to change how we see people. He doesn't want us to elevate ourselves above somebody else. And this is so serious. He says, hey, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Right? If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. That's serious, my friends. That's serious. Practically speaking, some of you might want to cut off some subscription services that you have. HBO Max, maybe. Prime Video. Because you can be watching things that you shouldn't be watching on there. You might want to not let yourself have access to the internet without filters or without accountability software, right? Get an accountability partner. Share the burden with somebody. That's the key. That's the key to beating porn, right? Because I try to do it by myself. And just praying and asking God to change me. And I'd be good for a while, and then I'd fall. I'd be good for a while, and then I'd fall. And then I started telling people about my addiction. I started telling my church family about my addiction. And every time I confess it, I'm strengthened against it. you got to do that. But you won't want to do that. That's the last thing you will want to do, right? Telling her, like, do you think I really want to mention my porn addiction in front of, you know, my, my wife and, and my in-laws? No, Right? But I can testify that through that confession, God has released me from it and freed me from it. Will will it be something that the devil tries to use? Absolutely. You got to be careful. Keep confessing it. Celebrate recovery. Got to get to it. Because there's other people that know exactly what you're going through. And they'll stand with you. All right? Next verse says, verse 31, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Divorce, right? In Jesus' day, a man, and only a man, could divorce a woman. 
And he used to have to give a certificate in order to do it, which made it extremely difficult. Divorce was very uncommon up until Jesus' time, though. And then it got easier and easier. Over time, the religious leaders allowed, hey, you don't have to do a certificate of divorce. You can just say it, and you can just get a divorce, right? A man could do it for, for any reason. And by the majority opinions, the religious leaders allowed that. So at Jesus' time, it was common. People were doing it all the time. Let me say this again. Only men could initiate it, and they could do it for any reason. That's a recipe for abuse, right? That is a recipe for the abuse of women. And Jesus takes a radical line here in this time period and elevates the dignity of women. If you look at Christianity and how it's affected women and what it's done, you'd be amazed. But the, so the religious might say, well, I did that divorce right. I got that certificate. But Jesus says men can't treat women as something they, they can just discard and throw away. Once again, it's the issue of elevating ourselves above somebody else, right? It's the same issue under the water that he dresses again and again. In these issues, people elevate themselves above other people, and what, that the, what does that allow? It allows for abuse time and time again. It leads to abuse. And that's not the type of kingdom he's bringing today, right? That's not the kingdom that we're called to be a part of. Check your heart. Otherwise, it it takes you places that you don't want to go, where things get twisted, and you think, oh, I have the right to murder somebody, because I'm up here, and they're down here, right? Murder is, is always an issue of, I have the right to take somebody else's own life, to take somebody else's life, because I'm above that person. A lot of times, it's messed up and twisted, but how did it get there? It starts with anger. It starts with porn. It starts with lust. It starts with treating women as something to just to be discarded, right? This is the way the world sees. And Jesus will not have any part of it in his kingdom. Jesus wants his kingdom to get to the heart of the matter. In this kingdom, you aren't a good person if your heart is full of sin, even if you're not doing the things on the surface, the behavior things. He's come to fulfill the law and to write the law on our hearts and in our minds, right? Oaths, verse 33. Again, you have heard this said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is footstools, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black, All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Anybody swear an oath or swear on something, right? What are you doing here when you swear by the God of Israel or swear on a mother's grave, right? We're borrowing from the integrity of somebody else to prop up the holes in our own integrity, right? The holes in our character, when we make those promises. We have a pattern of lying. That's the issue. We've got a pattern of lying, and so we have to use these oaths to somehow show people, hey, this time I'm serious. This time I'm telling the truth. I promise on my grandmother's grave I'll pay you back. Jesus is like, what are you doing? Right? Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
Just don't lie, and you won't have to borrow from somebody else's integrity. Again, we're trying to prop ourselves up. That's not how we should live, though, when, with one another in this new community. How are we doing? That's just a few of the things that Jesus addresses. Take some time and, and get into these things. All right? Notice all these things are about relationship. In, in Jesus' mind, uh, following him means having the deepest, darkest flaws in our characters exposed when it comes to the everyday health of us in, our, in this new community. Verse 43, let me end with this. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The, the, the religious people were telling you, hey, love the people that are like you. Hate your enemies, though, and, and you're good to go. No. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Isn't that his example? He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, makes no difference, and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Check this out. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In Jesus' mind, to know and truly follow him means going to that level, the beneath the surface level, and addressing the issues down there. Don't think you're good just because you haven't killed somebody, just because you haven't committed physical adultery, right? No, how are you treating someone? How are you looking at someone? That's what needs to be addressed. How do you view those people? Because that determines how you treat them, right? If they're just a piece of meat, something to use, to prop you up or to satisfy you, are you really going to be interested in sharing the good news with them? No. You're just going to use them and discard them. Want to know how you're doing spiritually? You can tell by how you treat people, right? Not only that, but how do I treat the people that I don't like? Or how do I treat the people that don't like me? There are some people, believe it or not, that don't like me. And I know it. How do you treat them? That'll tell you where your heart is at. Right? Because I know there's some people that I just really would like to tell off. How do you treat them? How do you see them? What's in your heart when you're looking at them? Mm. You really want to know what type of your person are? Don't look at how you treat your friends. That's easy. That's what, that's what the scripture says. That's easy. Everybody treats your friends well, or we should. Now look at how you treat your enemies. How you see people reveals the truth in your heart. Is it full of sin, or is it full of grace? That's the difference. Do you love sin, or do you love God, right? Well, I don't murder. Well, I'm not sleeping with them. Well, I keep my oaths. Congratulations, but that's just on the surface. 
That doesn't get to the heart of the matter. You want to follow him? You got to go deeper. You think you're good? You're not. Let's just be honest. You're not. I'm not. Right? You think you're ultimately a good person? When that happens, you don't need Jesus. If you're ultimately a good person, you don't need Jesus. When you realize you're not a good person, that becomes the point that you're desperate for him. That becomes the point that you fall down at his knees and ask him to change your heart. Right? How does Jesus send this? What's the command? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what Jesus tells them. What's the answer? Be perfect. Easy, right? How in the world do we do that? We ask him to change our hearts. Right? We surrender the areas of our lives to him. Every area that he shows us and he sanctifies us. He sets us apart. He changes us, and we act more and more like him. We start to treat people more and more like he did. We humble ourselves. We love people. We look at them differently. We lay down our wants of revenge, right? And we offer the other cheek to be kissed, to to let people come back into that relationship. Being perfect is not about the destination, It's about the direction that we're heading. Are we living in a life that is surrendered to him daily? Are we picking up our cross daily, right? Are we laying things down? Are we abiding in him? We work towards that. You'll never be perfect without sin while you're alive. But you can be heading in that direction. You can be laying things down. You can mess up. And you can confess, and you can repent, and you can get right back where you're going right and head to that point where you're abiding in him. You try to change things religion with religion, you'll only touch the surface, the part that's above the water, right? If the heart doesn't change, your struggle will not change. God has to change your heart. Create in me a clean heart, right? And renew a steadfast spirit. That's my prayer. Create in me a clean heart. One that wants to see people as you see people. One that wants to love people as you love people, right? Howard said something about his past. You know, I hate things of my past because of, well, maybe because of my family. Because I don't want them to be embarrassed. But I love my past because that's where I met Christ. It's in, those, it's in those failures that God became real to me. And he changed everything. And I found an unconditional love. So I wouldn't change that for the world. I don't know where you're at. But that's what's available to you. I don't know what your past is. I don't know what you're struggling with. I want to give you an opportunity, though. If you want to come to the altar and pray, lay some things down, repent of some things, ask for forgiveness of some things. Maybe you got off track and you just want to get back on track. Maybe you just want to come and just praise him. I want to offer you that opportunity right now. Would you stand with me?
You try to change things with religion, and it will never change. You can never make yourself by trying to follow the rules that will never change you. But if you ask him to change you, he will. If you surrender things to him, he will. Is there anybody that would want to do that right now? Maybe surrender some things. Maybe just get back on track. Maybe lay some things down. Now's the time. Would you bow your hands, heads? Friends, this is just chapter 5. It's 23 more chapters in Matthew. Plenty more. I don't know where you're at. But I know where you can go. I know the direction that you can go. It starts with surrender, though. Don't miss this time to kneel down at the altar or to come forward and sit one of these chairs and lay things down. Somebody's come. Don't let this person be the only one. Dear Lord, don't kid yourself. If you need to lay something down, don't walk out of here without surrendering that. Please don't. We're called to live for the king. We're called to be perfect. And if you don't realize that you're not, and that you don't have some work to do, man, you're not getting it. Father, we love you, and we give you all praise. Lord, I pray that we would surrender every area of our lives to you. Lord, I pray that you'd give this one peace and whatever she's up here asking for. Lord, I pray that you would remind her that she's your daughter and that you love her. Lord, we pray that our lives would be a blessing to you and that we'd live for you. Lord, we love you and we give you all praise. In your name we pray, amen. You are dismissed.